0: Well, how do you thrive in a world as scary uh, and as brutal as the one that we live in? You know, in the past couple of weeks, we have seen some horrible things. 59 people murdered and more than 500 wounded after a gunman rains bullets on them from a Las Vegas hotel room. In California, 42 are reported dead And hundreds are still missing after fires ravaged that state. In Mogadishu, 276 people killed in a terrorist truck bombing that took place three days ago. Drug deaths in America are rising faster than ever. Uh, More than 60,000 people died from overdoses last year, most of those uh, on opiates like heroin. I could go on and on and on. But all of this is just simply the backdrop to your life. This is just the stuff that's on the news ticker and in your newspapers. Closer to home, you're dealing with conflicts with family and conflicts with friends, divorce, breakups, anxiety, drug abuse, sex abuse, eating disorders, depression. Again, I could go on and on. So how do you thrive? How do you thrive in a world as scary and as brutal as the one that we live in today? A friend and a colleague of mine who is a campus minister uh, in Tennessee, he recently introduced me uh, to the story of a man named Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a Jewish, a Jewish uh, psychotherapist who spent the last two years of World War II in Auschwitz and Dachau, two of the Nazis' most notorious concentration camps. During his time in the camps, Frankel served as a de facto counselor for a lot of the inmates. Ever the counselor and social scientist, Frankel was curious how people responded to the unbelievable sufferings and atrocities uh, that they experienced there. And he noted four different responses. Okay, four different responses to the brutality of the world. The first response was that people got brutal back. Nice people before the camps became hard-hearted and cold and cruel inside of them. They stole bread from others who were themselves starving. And they did everything to survive, even if survival meant stepping over other people. The second response is that people gave up. They lost all of hope, all of their hope in the camp. They refused. One day they would just wake up, and they would refuse to get dressed or wash or go to the parade grounds for inspection. They quite literally just lay down and died. Some got brutal, some gave up hope. The third group held out hope that life would be better after the camps. Frankel writes, many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. If they could just stay alive, they could get their hope back. But after liberation, so many found, when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than what they had longed for. You see, when the thing that they had hoped for and that had put their hope in, it didn't deliver. When they realized that all of the um, suffering that they experienced couldn't compensate, or all the, the, the things in life after the camp couldn't compensate for what they had experienced in the camp, they became severely depressed and or committed suicide. But there was a fourth group, okay? There was a fourth group who, even though they were brutalized and dehumanized and would never get their former lives back, they did not become cruel, they did not despair, uh, and they did not commit suicide, but they remained humane and courageous and gentle and kind. They were never happy in the camps, but they didn't become cynical. Their secret, Frankel says, is that they had hope. And not any hope, mind you, because you realize, right, the third group had hope too. What made this group unique is what they put their hope in. Okay? When fellow inmates in the camp would come up to him and ask, Doctor, how can I handle this? He would say to them, life only has meaning If we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death can destroy. Life only has meaning if we have a hope that neither suffering, nor circumstances, nor not even death can destroy. Which is to say, if you're going to thrive in a world like ours, you need a hope like that. Right? A hope that is bigger than your suffering and circumstances. You need to put your hope in something or someone that is bigger than all of your problems put together and can handle them, right? Something or someone that is more powerful than death. And what I want to do for you tonight is I want to introduce you to that hope. I want to introduce you to that hope. And first of all, I want you to see that this hope, it's not something that that you find so much, but it's a hope that finds you, right? This hope comes to you. That's the first thing I want you to see uh, from the text tonight. If you look at your passage, you pay attention to its setting, you see that our story takes place tonight at a place called the Pools of Bethesda. Okay, the Pools of Bethesda. Now I want you to imagine a huge Olympic-sized pool. And now I want you to imagine that pool being filled with some of the coolest and the cleanest and the most refreshing water imaginable. Okay, can you imagine this pool? You have it in your mind? This pool is nothing like that. (laughs) I want you to banish that thought from your memory. (laughs) Okay? The pools of Bethesda are a filthy place. Okay, it is more a makeshift hospital uh, than it is a pool. And it's unlike any hospital you and I have ever been in. Okay? There are invalids everywhere the lame, the blind, and they're paralyzed, and they cannot move, right? Not even to use the bathroom. I know some of you here give tours at UVM. If I was a tour guide giving you a tour of the pools of Bethesda, what you would see is suffering on a large scale. What you would hear is weeping and groaning and moaning. And what you would smell is feces and urine, And death. Okay, the pools of Bethesda are not a nice place. It sounds nice. It's not nice. And Jesus goes here. Not only does Jesus go here, he goes here on vacation. Because I don't know if you notice, in verse 1, it's a holiday in Jerusalem. Right? It is a feast of the Jews. It's a time of year when most people are going home and they're hanging out with family and friends. But instead of sitting down at a big table with tons of food on top, instead of gathering around the fire with your cousins and doing a puzzle as you drink hot apple cider, instead of going to Rockefeller Center and skidding and looking at the tree, what does Jesus do? Well, he goes here, right to the pools of Bethesda, a miserable place, drained of color, marked by cruelty and despair. And who or what does Jesus see there? Well, the text says here in verses 5 and 6 that he saw a man. Right? He saw a man who had been lying there, literally living there right, for 38 years. 38 years ago, this man went to the pools of Bethesda with the hope of being healed. That's why he went. I can get healed there. And he made that decision 38 years ago. But after 38 years of waiting and waiting, after 38 years of being pushed aside and stepped on and looked over, this place of hope had literally turned into a place of darkness and despair. And like the second group of inmates that Frankel observed in the concentration camps, the ones who lost hope and lay down and died, That's what he's doing. He's just laying down to die. This man is not looking for Jesus. There at the pools of Bethesda. He's not looking for him. But Jesus is looking for this man. Hope enters into our darkness. Hope comes to us. You know, sometimes we think that we are, um, sometimes we think that the mess that we are in, it grosses God out. Right? It just grosses him out and it, and it keeps him at bay. And whether we are responsible for the mess or not, we just think, right? Messes are messy. And why would anybody, let alone God, want to get close to that? And look, if, you've, if you think this way, you've never been to a hospital before. If you think this way, you've never been to a hospital before. Because what happens when the ambulance rolls in? And what happens when the doors fling open and they're pushing somebody in a stretcher? Maybe the victim of a gunshot wound with blood and guts you know, spilling out of his chest. Seeing this, do doctors and nurses run away from the patient? Do they run away from the gunshot wound? No, right? Seeing the suffering, what do they do? What does a good doctor or a good, a good nurse do? They run towards it, right? Suffering compels them. Right? It moves them, not away from the suffering, but towards it. And guess what? Jesus shows himself here to be a good nurse. He shows himself here to be a good doctor. He shows himself here to be a good counselor. He comes to the invalid at the pools of Bethesda. And he comes to you too. You know, if you think about it, it is hard to get much lower than a mat at the pools of Bethesda. It's hard to get much lower than lying on a mat in this filthy, miserable place. That's about as low as you can go. But significantly. right? Jesus goes there. And he meets this man there. And he meets you in your low places too. He meets you in your places too. He meets you in the sadness that surrounds the death of a friend of yours. He meets you in the sadness of your parents' divorce. He meets you in the shame that accompanies your sex abuse or your eating disorder or your addiction. He meets you in your darkness, the sorrow uh, of an accident or your anxiety or your depression Jesus meets you in the darkness he meets you in the mess and the messes of your life lifeless, hopeless, unable to move he comes to you and he asks you a question do you want to be healed? do you want to be healed? that's the second part of this sermon second point Right? Hope comes to us, is point number one. But point number two is that hope comes with a question. Do you want to be healed? And it seems like a silly question. It seems even offensive, kind of provocative. Well, of course I want to be healed. What kind of question is that? Who doesn't want to be healed? But before you scoff or you pick up stones to lob at Jesus, I want you to slow down and think for a moment. <laughs> You know, what is Jesus doing here? Why does he ask this question? You know, I'm pretty convinced uh, at this stage in my life that Jesus is no I I'm pretty convinced that Jesus is pretty smart and strategic. And I'm pretty convinced that he is a compassionate person. So I don't think he's trying to hurt this man. He has come to this hopeless hospital. He's playing the part of a good doctor. His question is more of a diagnostic than anything else. It's a diagnostic question. I I don't expect you to know this about me. I, I don't tell many people, but I have a really bad IT band. A really sore IT band. You nurses, probably know what that is. I didn't even know that I had an IT band until I experienced pain with it uh, in college. But the IT band is a ligament that runs from your hip, uh, really, to your shins. And it it attaches to your knee and kind of moves it and and stabilizes it. It it holds it in place. When the IT band isn't working right, whether because you have a weird gait or you just overuse it, the simple walk, or the simple act of walking can become, like, really unbearable. And in college, I was running a lot, sometimes six miles a day. Well, it began to flare up, and I didn't know what the pain was. I didn't know what the problem was. And I just simply assumed, gosh, I've got knee pain. And like other friends of mine who had had knee pain, I was like, well, I need to go and get surgery. I need surgery on my knees. When I finally went to the doctor thinking, I'm going to need surgery, the doctor took some x-rays and he started pressing on my body. He started press on my, my leg muscles. He started to press on my lower back. He started to press on my hip. And all the while he was asking questions. Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Right? Does this hurt? And sometimes the answer was yes. <laughs> of course it hurts. I told you it hurts. And sometimes the answer was no. But my yeses and nos revealed to the doctor what was really wrong. Right, my yeses and noes, my answer to those questions revealed that that the problem wasn't actually in my knee. The problem was actually further up and further in. It was with my IT band, right, with this ligament connecting uh, my back and leg muscles. I thought I needed surgery, but as the doctor pointed out to me that day, you don't need surgery, you just need to stretch. And I still do, Megan's laughing. Right? I still do. Well, when Jesus turns up and he starts asking, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Does this hurt? He's a lot like that doctor I had in college, pressing, asking questions. How this man answers this question reveals to Jesus where the pain and where the problem really lies. Because when Jesus asks this question, do you want to be healed? The man does not say, yes, sir, I really do want to be healed. Thank you for asking. He says, maybe a little bit sarcastically, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. You know, when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down to the pool, another person just steps all over me. So you're asking me, do I want to be healed? When pressed, When pressed, this man reveals that the pain isn't limited to his legs or his lower back. More seriously, the pain is in his heart. This man has become cynical. Right, suffering and the brutality and the cruelty of the world has made him hard and bitter. The most pressing problem is really his hopelessness, right, and his hardness of heart. And cynicism is deadly. Cynicism is deadly. And the cynicism is the belief that there is nothing truly good or beautiful in the world. There's always an angle There's always uh, some ulterior motive. Behind every act of love or altruism, there's always selfishness and self-interest. Cynicism is a part of uh, the defensive posture we take to protect ourselves. As one psychologist writes, it's typically triggered when we feel hurt uh, hurt by or angry at something. And instead of dealing with those emotions directly, we allow them to fester and skew our outlook. When we grow cynical toward one thing in our lives, we may slowly start to turn cynical on everything. End quote. Okay, cynicism is like a cancer that starts off small in one particular part of your body, but it quickly spreads, it quickly metastasizes and infects everything else. Right? Somebody close to you hurts you, for example, and instead of dealing with that pain, you clam up. And this painful episode uh, infects your entire outlook. Everybody is then awful. No one is to be trusted. Don't let anybody get too close. You you become cynical. You guard your heart by burying it. You guard your heart by putting it in the grave. Not only is cynicism a defensive move, it's a self-imposed form of blindness. The cynic thinks he or she is so wise because they can see through everything and everyone. Right? They see through your generosity to really see your selfishness. Right? They see through that act of love. Actually, it's not that loving. Right? They're always seeing through stuff. Uh, in a commencement speech he gave at Knox College, Stephen Colbert had this to say. He said, Young people who pretend to be wise uh, to the ways of the world are mostly just cynics. Cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it's the farthest thing from it. Because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed, uh, self-imposed blindness. It's a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Stephen Colbert. Okay, C.S. Lewis was on the same wavelength when he wrote this. He said, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque and we want to look at it. But how if you saw through the garden too? You know, if you see through everything, then everything is transparent. And a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. It's not to see, it's a self imposed form of blindness. All right? The paralytic in John 5 has become cynical. Okay? Yes, he has a leg wound, or yes, he has a bad back. But the thing that is really going to kill him is not his leg wound or bad back. The thing that is really going to destroy him is the cancer lodged in his heart called cynicism. That is really going to be the end of him. This man thinks that what he really needs is to be put in a pool. But the source of his problems, like the pain in my knee, runs further up and further in. And this is why Jesus doesn't pick him up and put him in the pool. Right? He doesn't put him in the pool because the way this man answers the questions that Jesus is asking reveals that the real pain is not down here in his legs, but it's really up here in his heart. Right? Do you remember my doctor saying, you don't need surgery, you need to stretch? Well, this is the Jesus equivalent of that. You don't need a pool, you need to get up, you need to take up your bed, you need to walk. If you zoom out here for a second, you know, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is redirecting this man's hope. He is redirecting this man's hope away from the pool, away from this thing that he thinks that he needs in order to be made well, and he is redirecting his gaze back at him, back at Jesus. Jesus is redirecting this man away from a technique, away from something in this world, away from something that he thought, oh, if I could just have that, then I would be okay. Then I would be okay. And Jesus is redirecting it, redirecting this man's hope back at him. He essentially says, you don't need that pool, you need me. You don't need surgery, you need a stretch. But don't look over there, look here. All right. Look at the one that you really need. And this brings us uh, to our third and final point. Hope comes to us, and it comes with a question, right? Hope comes to us, and he comes with a question, not it, he, right? And his name is Jesus, right? Jesus is the hope uh, that we really need. You know, look, obviously, we don't want to be cynical, right? We don't want to be cynics. But we don't want to be optimistic either, Okay, hope and optimism are not the same thing. Optimism is like putting on rose-colored glasses or rose-tinted glasses. The optimist puts these things on and he looks at the Las Vegas shooting or looks at the bombing at Mogadishu or looks at the pain in your life and says, it doesn't look that bad. It's not that bad. That's the language of Optimism. Not that bad. It's not the language of hope. The optimist says not that bad. The hope-filled person says not the end of the story. Not the end of the story. That's a very different sort of thing to say. Hope is not rose-colored glasses. Hope is prescription-strength ones. The optimist is going to give you rose-colored glasses. The, The hopeful person is going to give you prescription strength and say, "Put these on. I want you to see something very, very clearly. I want you to see everything in 2020, right? And that includes the bad. It forces hope. Forces you to take in the whole picture. And in this regard, hope is not pessimistic, and it's not optimistic." But it is realistic. Okay, hope is realistic. And what, according to the Bible, is ultimate reality? What is the most real thing there is? The Bible says, at the very center of reality is a God who made a very good and a very beautiful world. The Bible says at the very center of reality is a God who watched his children set his house on fire and who, like a fireman, broke into it in order to rescue the loved ones trapped inside. The Bible says at the very center of reality is a God who died on a cross taking the punishment that our sins deserve, who was put in a tomb, and who, three days later, rose victorious from the grave. This, the Bible says, is at the very center of reality. It is a God and it is a beautiful but broken world that is being saved. It is not a fairy tale. It is not wishful thinking. It is not a sweet idea that I sing to Willa as I put her to sleep. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is real. It really happened. And how, we, how real are we talking? Well, I'm talking this real. If you were to take a video camera and you were to travel back in time to circa 33 AD and you went to Jerusalem on some Friday, what you would see with your video camera is a man named Jesus dying on a wooden cross. Your video camera would record him taking his final breath on this cross and crying out, it is finished, and then your video camera would, would record this man being wrapped up in a linen shroud and placed in a tomb. And if you're still thinking, if you're smart enough to keep that camera rolling, and you put that camera in the tomb, what you would see is a man lying there for three days, but then on the third day, that man who was dead is getting up, and he's taking off the grave clothes, and he's putting them in a pile, and he's putting it on the shelf, and then he's rolling away the stone, and he steps out on the new day, and then he's gone. Because he's not in the tomb anymore. This is what your video camera would record. This is the reality that we're talking about. When we say resurrection, we're not talking about a euphemism for, you know, his memory lives on in our hearts. We're talking about he lives. Because he stepped out of the tomb, because Jesus still lives. Your sickness, your sorrow, even your death, it's not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of Jesus' story, and it won't be the end of yours either. The hope-filled person is not pessimistic or optimistic, but realistic. He or she takes everything into account. Everything into account. The hope-filled person is not blind to the pains of the world, but they don't have blinders on either. Yes, they see the ugliness, as sure as Victor Frankl saw the ugliness and the horrors of the Holocaust. But that is not all that they see. They see the big picture. They see the world is beautiful. They see that the world is broken and they see that the world has been saved and is being saved and will be saved fully and finally when Jesus comes back. They see it all. Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. And when he does, the work that he began will be finished. Everything wrong will be made right and every tear from your eyes will be wiped away. The hope-filled person sees it all hope does not say to the las vegas shooting your parents divorce your car accident or your climbing accident that it's not bad or sad or tragic because it is it is sad it is bad it is tragic right hope doesn't downplay that but it doesn't end there either the hope filled person sees it all and can say and can say it all it is awful but it's not the end of the story. Yeah, that's, that was awful, but that's not the end of my story. No, tragedy does not have the final word. The final word belongs to Jesus. The final word belongs to the one who at the end of the age will not just say to the paralytic, but will say to all of us in our graves, get up, take up your bed, and Walk. In order to survive, let alone thrive in a world like ours, you need to fix your hope on something, someone out of this world. Frankly, someone out of your control. Something that neither suffering, circumstances, nor death can destroy. Someone that is bigger than all of your problems put together. Someone more powerful than death. Some, someone named Jesus. Do you want to be healed? When pressed, do you want to be healed? Because look, hope comes to you. And he comes with a question. And he comes with a name. And his name is Jesus. He is the one that the paralytic man and you and I really need. Let's pray.